Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 520th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who encourages youth in his community to bloom through off-grid farming on vacant lots. We're talking with Keelan Blackwell about urban flower farms. Keelan's background in renewable energy and community organizing is well-suited in his role as president of Southside Blooms, where they serve over 70 youth a week at four sites in Chicago and one site in Detroit. Southside Blooms has the mission using sustainability to alleviate inner city poverty through scalable social enterprise programs that convert vacant city lots into off-grid flower farms. How cool is that? Keelan's organizing credentials include work abroad as a volunteer in the Peace Corps, organizing rural farmers in Thailand, all the way to helping working class residents of suburban Milwaukee attain affordable housing. He later worked in the biofuels industry where he procured feedstock such as used cooking oil and soybean oil for biodiesel production. Keelan holds a bachelor's degree with comprehensive honors from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a master's degree in environmental policy from the University of Denver. Welcome to the show today, Keelan. Are you ready to rock flowers? Yes, I am, Greg. Let's get to chatting. Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, you know, I'm originally from Madison, Wisconsin. I didn't really grow up with a passion for agriculture or anything. You know, Madison's a, you know, typical Midwestern city. And, you know, when I went to UW, I was actually, you know, I was a history major. So really, my first experience with agriculture wasn't until I was in the Peace Corps. I mean, I was in Thailand, in northern Thailand near Chiang Mai. And, you know, my project was actually to help organize a co-op of Thai farmers to help them sell their 
organic fertilizer. So that was really my first foray into agriculture. Later, when I moved to Chicago, because I came to Chicago to go to ministry school, and I was tutoring at a high school as part of my you know ministry uh, internship on in the south side of Chicago in the inner city, uh, this neighborhood called Inglewood. And you know, like that was my first opportunity really to get acclimated with like a lot of the inner city issues. You know, get to really hear the stories of a lot of the teens and their families. You know, and then, of course, you know, one of the first things that really struck me was seeing a lot of the urban blight, you know, the vacant buildings, the Mm -hmm. potholes, the, you know, the vacant lots. So, you know, we decided to start Eco House as a response to that. And we looked at it as an opportunity to really, for me personally, to blend my, you know, background in community organizing as well as sustainability. And, you know, really just through some trial and error initially. We land on urban ag as just really being the most viable way to really try to create jobs and extend sustainable industry in the inner city. At first, we had more of a conventional approach to urban agriculture. You know, we worked with the school. We had a you know conventional school garden. We we're growing our raised beds. But, you know, our, our goal was really to try to find something that would make sense from a production standpoint. So, you know, that's how we eventually end up landing on flowers and, you know, building the program that we have today. I was going to ask you why flowers and not food. But then as you were sharing, it occurred to me that flowers are a real high-end product. That is precisely right. Yeah. So, you know, this is a question I get commonly. And, you know, even like when we were first starting in the community, like this is like some of the blowback we would get. Because, you know, people say like, you know, why are you focusing on flowers? You can't eat a flower. You know, obviously we're in communities that have a lot of food deserts. So it seemed very counterintuitive on the surface. But, you know, when you kind of look at it from an economic lens, a lot of the dynamics within the flower industry are actually very favorable for the inner city and for particularly a place like Chicago. You know, about 80% of the flowers that are, you know, used in the United States are actually imports, with about two-thirds of that coming from Central and South America. You know, when you look at, you know, so it creates like a huge opportunity for domestic production, obviously. And then when you're talking about like a city like Chicago, Chicago is one of the biggest markets in the United States in terms of consumption of flowers. When you think about, you know, hotels and restaurants and, you know, weddings and events and, you know, all these different things that, you know, are, you know, that require flowers, but we kind of, you know, don't think about it as uh, regularly as we think about food. So, you know, you know, that's the reason why we decided to really focus on flowers, just because it made sense financially. The other thing that a lot of people don't consider with flowers is that you're not necessarily beholden to the same USDA regulations, right? So, you know, like oh, with right. To try to do a commercial, yeah, you know, so if we were to try to do a, a commercial food farm, you know, we would have to like, you know, make sure we have food safety handling uh, guidelines. We need to make sure we have like wash sinks and a lot of this additional infrastructure that would obviously drive up the cost of our operation and drive down our, our bottom line. Whereas since with flowers, you know, you're not eating flowers, you don't have to worry about, you know, someone getting sick as a result of consuming it. So, you know, we can just grow stuff that's straight in the ground. You know, therefore, our infrastructure costs are a lot lower. It costs us about, you know, five to $6,000 to set up off-grid flower farm on a vacant lot. And then the final point in terms of why we decided to focus on flowers is that, like, when you're in a city like Chicago, a lot of the vacant lots aren't irritable. And what I mean by that is, like, you know, you have a lot of heavy metals like lead and arsenic mm-hmm. and other things that are toxins, you know, that you have to worry about if you're, you know, growing food. But with flowers, that's not an issue at all, you know. So... 
it just makes a lot of sense, you know, on both the supply side, because like, you know, as you alluded to, um, it is a high dollar item. You know, it's basically a luxury product if you stop and think about it. And, you know, on the production side, costs are way, way lower. I have to say, when I first found you online and started looking at what you were doing, I thought it would make a great interview. And I really had a pause moment where it was like flowers. And I have to to say, this is brilliant. This is absolutely brilliant for all of the reasons you just outlined. So congratulations, man. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. Definitely took a lot of hard work and it was a team effort. Yeah. Well, it it, it always is a team effort. That's how we do our best work. But just putting it in order the way that you did it to make an impact in the communities, that's absolutely brilliant. I just want to thank you for that. Thanks. Appreciate that. So what inspired you to start Southside Blooms? Yeah. So, you know, Eco House is a nonprofit and, you know, the the purpose of the nonprofit is really workforce development, right? So we're trying to bring in sustainable industry. We're trying to convert these vacant lots into these flower farms. And we're investing a lot in terms of, you know, providing training for a lot of the at-risk youth, young adults that we're working with. But, you know, like, because we're in the market, we wanted to set up a flower shop because, you know, you were producing all these flowers. You know, it's cool that the kids are relearning these skills. It's cool that we're remediating blight. But there's also an opportunity for a lot of our youth and young adults to, you know, really be able to uh, learn the floral side of it and, you know, learn like flower arranging, how to make centerpieces, how to make bouquets, and everything else that you would see at a florist. So Southside Blooms was set up with the explicit purpose of being the market-facing side of Eco House, wow. uh, where we can sell direct to consumer. You know, because like, you know, before when we were just doing our flowers under Eco House, we would wholesale the flowers. But obviously, you know, we're getting pennies on the dollar when we wholesale our flowers versus, you know, when we sell direct to consumer. So it's just a way to really extend our reach into the market. I want to jump in here, though, because uh, you're working with at-risk youth, correct? Yep. Yep, that's correct. So you're really giving them an opportunity to go through the entire process from growing the flowers to harvesting the flowers to processing the flowers into bouquets and stuff and then interfacing with the public. Yes, that's 100% right. That's again, that's brilliant. Good job. Full disclosure, you know, I live in so I live on the south side. I live in the communities that we work in and that's very important to me. I would say the, you know, the biggest difference when you like live in a community that is experiencing a lot of stress versus when you, you know, you live somewhere else and maybe you come in and you do some good work for you, you know, at the end of the day when five o'clock hits, you get to go back home is that, you know, you feel that same pressure yourself, right? Because, you know, when midnight hits in Inglewood on a, you know, warm July day and, you know, there's gunshots ringing on the block, like my family's just as much at risk as any other family on the block, right? Mm-hmm, like right. bullets don't discriminate. So, you know, it lights a certain different fire under your butt when, you know, you're in the frying pan yourself. So, you know, for us, this is really about how can we really get a lot of these teens out of gangs, off the streets, and into productive, viable careers? Not just a job, you know, not just, hey, you know, you can work at McDonald's, you can work at Target. Like, no, you know, this is a flower industry. How can we basically take you from where, you know, you start off as a farmhand to where maybe one day, you know, you're one of the top floral designers in the country, you know? Like, there's that kind of opportunity here. And, you know, when you really start looking at just how dynamic and robust the flower industry is from top to bottom, 
them, because like you alluded to, it's not just about growing flowers. You know, there's a flower design, there's the event planning, like everything that's involved, you know, in the whole flower experience. We want our kids to have a hand in, you know, so that just creates more job opportunities and career opportunities in the community. It's also very important to us that our neighborhood that we're working in is really the foundation for the for the flower industry that we're developing here. Because, you know, that's the other thing, too, is like, you know, a lot of times people do these job programs and the implicit the implicit message that we send to our kids is that, hey, if you want to be a success, you have to leave your home neighborhood, right? right. You, know, you need to have you have to go downtown. You have to go to the north side. You need to go somewhere better, you know, but the, but the reality is not everybody can do that. And, you know, the other reality is not everybody wants to do that. Like, just like you or anyone else, people love to be home, you know? Right. I mean, there's no perfect neighborhood, you know what I mean? So, you know, yes, to an outsider, you may look at a place like the South Side of Chicago and be like, yeah, of course, you know, you'd want to escape there. But to like a lot of people who live here, this is home. This is where their family is. This is where their friends are. This is, you know, where they made many memories. Like, they want to stay here. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, you know, for us, we want to really try to, you know, work from the inside out instead of trying to like extract people from their home communities and try to put them into a different context once again high five man walk me into one of your flower gardens what am i going to see what what am i going to be interacting with what's that look like yeah, so you know, you you know, you pull up on the block. You know, it's a residential block. So you know, let's say you come to our farm here in Inglewood, you would see beautiful graystone homes with like you know these big beautiful trees, and you know you'll walk in. The fence is painted red. You have some artwork you know, on the back of this farm uh, that the kids have done. You'll walk in. You'll see like seven flower beds with zinnias, sunflowers, bachelor buttons, all sorts of different flowers growing. You know, you walk through, you know, through our little field of flowers and the in the farm. You'll see a nice shed, you know, with artwork, you know, the kids' names and different designs that they've painted. Uh, you look on top of the shed, you'll see three solar panels. Uh, that's where we, you know, produce our on-site power. Nice. Um, you'll, look to, you'll look to the right and you'll see about 10 IBC totes that are collecting rainwater from the neighbor's uh, oh. downspout. So that's where we get our rainwater collection. You know, you look underneath the flowers and you'll see our irrigation lines and our irrigation lines are connected to an electric pump that's tied to those totes, you know, and then the what's powering the pump is obviously the power from the solar that's, you know, connected into the shed. So yeah, you'll, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fantastic experience, particularly if you were to come in like late summer, early fall. Oh, and then of course I can't forget our bees. Uh, you know, you'll see like five beehives, you know, if oh, you were to look to nice. your left. So, you know, we do, we do have like honey production as well because, you know, when you have flowers, bees go hand in hand. They're great for pollination, which is, you know, good for our flowers. And then, you know, it helps them to, uh, you know, make nice, tasty honey, which we will begin selling next year. You know, that's where we have our first batch of honey ready for uh, market. You know, so, yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful experience. You know, the other thing too you got to think about is, you know, flowers also attract pollinators. So, you know, you'll see a lot of butterflies, you'll see hummingbirds, you'll see moths. Like, there's a lot of life on the Eco House flower farm, you know, when it's in full bloom. Right. And, you know, the funny thing is, like, when a lot of uh, people come on our farms, they don't feel like they're in the city. They don't feel like they're on the south side of Chicago. You know, like, people often remark, wow, I feel like I'm in the country. You know, like, I see all these different bugs and insects and grasshoppers. I hear crickets. You know, and a lot of our students who come and who work on the farms, like a lot of them, 
you know, come from like very difficult backgrounds. You know, we do work with like gang affiliated youth or returning citizens and ex-offenders, you know, and they'll say like, there's like a calming effect that they feel when they're working on the farm or they're working with the flowers, you know? So there's also sort of a healing and natural therapeutic process that a lot of our participants experience. You know, we can't take credit for that. That's just sort of mother nature doing what she does best. So it is really a, you know, a heaven on earth kind of experience. I mean, I feel very lucky because, you know, this is my job. So I get to be out (laughs) there in the summer. You know, I'm not in a cubicle, just sort of, you know, staring, you know, at a blank wall or staring at my computer. So I'm enjoying this. Like I'm out there. I'm like, you know, interacting with the kids. I'm out there, you know, helping out planting seeds and harvesting. So yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, any, if you're ever in Chicago, I would highly encourage you to come and, you know, check it out yourself. Yeah. Wow. So I, I have to apologize. I'm, I've interrupted you a few times, but it's just because I'm so excited about what you're doing. This is <laughs> good job. I just, I'm, one of the reasons I do this podcast is because I get to interview really cool people doing really cool stuff. And man, you are one of them. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, we're definitely trying to do our part out here, you know? Yeah. One of the reasons, one of the big reasons I suspect you're doing this is to impact youth and have them have a different pathway than what was maybe prescribed with their with their life or the area that they live totally. in. Right. Tell me about, there was, I'm sure there's one or two young people that have come along and the experience they had reflected back to you it's like keelan saying oh my gosh yes this is the reason i do what i do (laughs) tell me about one of those so there's uh one young man he's 19 his name's kobe back when he was like 16 17 years old who was shot i think like 12 or 13 times he's in a gang grew up in a very dysfunctional setting i mean he's from inglewood on track to basically be a statistic right like he was on track to basically be dead or in jail but like after that experience he barely survives and he realizes, like, wow, I could have been dead. I need to do something different with my life. He ends up bumping into, you know, one of our community partners, uh, this lady named Sally Hazelgrove, who runs an after-school boxing gym in the community. And, you know, he really started getting connected there, you know, and she, like, really helped him to, you know, like, really create a family environment around him, like, help him just sort of bring some stability to his life. And, you know, like, he was, like, doing the boxing gym for a couple years. And, you know, Sally was like, well, hey, you know, you've you're kind of been here for a while. It's good that you sort of are getting a little more social stability, but, you know, you're not a kid anymore. You're, you know, you're 18, 19 years old, and it's time for you to start thinking about that next step and how we're going to be able to transition you into the real world. So, you know, let me have you talk to my friend Keelan, who runs this thing called Eco House in the neighborhood. So, you know, he came, he did an internship with us this past summer, and he absolutely loved it. I mean, it's, you know, one of the things that kind of what you're saying in terms of, you know, really providing a different track. Uh, a lot of people don't really associate, you know, gangbangers and flowers, right? So, right. you know, when, you know, when we'll have donors come or volunteer groups come and they see someone like Kobe, you know, working on the farm and working with flowers, you know, cause it's a very delicate business when you're, you know, you have to clip the flowers a certain way, you have to dip them in water, right? You know, so it helps to like soften the image and it helps to humanize Kobe to outsiders, you know, which really helps people to begin to interact with them you know, as a 19-year-old versus, like, looking at him as his hardened criminal. You know, he's got, like, tattoos and that kind of thing. But, you know, so he does this internship with us, 
And at first, he really wasn't sure, like, was a you know, was going to be about. He knows nothing about farming. He knows nothing about regenerative ag or sustainability. You know, all he's looking for is just a chance. He's looking for an opportunity. You know, and long and behold, he ends up loving it. Like, he ends up loving the diversity of work. He loves being outside. And he says that, like, it helps him to, like, like he can breathe again. You know, it helps him to clear his mind. And, you know, he successfully completed his internship. And we actually hired him on as staff this fall. So now he's like, you know, working as a production assistant on our flower farms. And, you know, now he's like at a point where, you know, he's like working 20 hours a week. He's, you know, making decent money. You know, our, our staffing is like $15 an hour. You know, so he's making decent money for him. I mean, it's stable, you know, it's a stable job. And now he's able to start thinking about bigger things. You know, like I just had a conversation with him a couple of weeks ago because, you know, a lot of these kids, like they've never really had to deal with money before. So, you know, start having a conversation with them about, you know, personal finance and, you know, financial planning. And I was like, hey, you know, what are you doing with this money? Uh, you know, he's just like, well, I'm just saving it right now. Well, I was like, well, hey, let's talk about like, you know, some of the things you can do. Like, let's talk about how we can build your credit. You know, maybe you could buy yourself a property here in the next three to five years in the neighborhood. Please, you know, properties here are relatively affordable compared to like other parts of the city. You know, let's talk about, you know, how we can get yourself a car that's reliable. You know, he has like a baby girl and, you know, like transporting her is going to be very important. So now like all these other options are opening up to him. And one of the things he said to me after that conversation was like, wow, Keelan, you know, no one's ever talked to me like this. Like no one's ever talked to me, in, you know, from the perspective that, you know, I have something that of value to offer. I have a future to protect. You know, I have, you know, a reason to like wake up in the morning and to like, you know, strategize with the resources that I'm making and, you know, to plan for the, you know, to have a better future for my daughter. And that's the kind of thing that keeps me going, you know, like, you know, cause of course, there's a lot of you know, difficult days and building this thing out hasn't been easy and still isn't easy. But when I see people like Kobe who come through the program and you see literally a, you know, a death to life story, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. And I really think like that's the potential that, you know, regenerative agriculture and sustainability as a movement really has, not just for people in Chicago, but, you know, oppressed peoples all across the world, because it is a new and emerging field that is just, you know, it's just continuing to gain steam year after year, more people are waking up to the fact that, you know, we need to grow things that are closer, grow things that are better quality, you know, that's free of chemicals and fertilizers, that's not degrading our soil, you know, so people like Kobe, in my opinion, should be like some of the first people to really benefit from that, and they are starting to benefit from that because, you know, they're, I mean, let's just be honest, like someone like Kobe, he's going to be a little more desperate, so he's going to be willing to take an opportunity, like, you know, come into Eco House and work on our flower farm and really run with it because he doesn't have any other option, you know, because right. the flip side of this is, you know, I, I teach part-time at Wheaton College, so I work with, like, you know, these college students who come from very, you know, elite and affluent backgrounds. And when they come on the farm, I mean, they're helpful, you know, they're nice and professional, but they, you know, they basically have been given everything and every chance to succeed in life from day one. They have a million options. So, you know, for them, this is like, oh, this is a nice little thing, but, you know, I got like 10 other things that are, you know, more viable. So I'm not going to take a chance on like Virginia back. You see what I'm saying? So... You know, I really do think that I encourage your listeners to really look at regenerative agriculture and trying to do it in places where there's a lot of poverty, where there's a lot of suffering, where there's a lot of hurt. Because, you know, it may, you know, on the surface look like there's not a lot of opportunity there, but those people are going to be the ones who are going to really like grab hold to these ideals and run with it, you know, and really make a, not only a name for themselves and make their lives better, but they're going to extend our work to really try to displace conventional lag over time. Wow. And how 
when when something like this happens with a young person, how does that make you feel? I mean, it, it makes me feel like fantastic. You know, I mean, I don't you know want to get emotional here, but you know, like why not? You know, like I... <laughs> please do, man. This is the reason. This is the reason that we do what we do to make an impact for people, and it's emotional when you impact a young man like that. I mean, yeah, it, it, I mean, the, you know, the reason why it, you know, really resonates with me is because, you know, I personally don't, like, I didn't grow up in the hood, right? You know, I grew up in a very affluent, you know, setting myself. Like, I had a very Bill Cosby kind of background growing up in Madison. And, you know, the only reason I even came here and really dedicated myself to this is because, you know, like, I'm a Christian. And, you know, for me, my faith is very important. I really felt like God was really telling me, hey, I care about these people. I need you here. And, you know, I didn't want to do it. You know, and there's like many times along the road where I wanted to quit. And, you know, like I wasn't thinking about the Kobe's. I wasn't thinking about like a lot of the, you know, young men and women that we're working with today. And, you know, like being in this for, you know, like the last, what, five, six years, I look back and I think to myself, man, well, what if I did quit? You know, like what would have happened to Kobe? You know, what would have happened to like a lot of these people that we're working with? You know, like what would have happened to the neighborhoods that we're currently, you know, building our farms? And it's kind of a scary thought, you know what I mean? Sometimes when we, you know, do something, we have like a passion, because everyone has a passion or a dream to do something. But then, you know, a lot of times for most of us, we let, you know, the cares of the world to really suppress it. Like, oh, it's not realistic. It's not practical. No one's going to believe you. Like, you know, whatever sort of negative talk track that you have in your head, like that's what we'll tell ourselves to convince ourselves not to take action, right? But we never think like, well, wait a minute, you know, our dream isn't just about us. It's not just for us, but it's connected to someone who's a perfect stranger right now. Right. And, you know, you don't really realize just how impactful that dream is until you take that action and you stick with it and you don't quit. And then one day you meet someone like Kobe who affirms that choice, you know, and then like you just keep meeting future people and you see like what they end up doing and how they basically take that dream that you had and then they turn into their own dream and then they make what you were dreaming even better, you know, and then over time it just becomes, you know, almost movement. You know, like I would never have thought that we would have had, you know, four farms in the city and, you know, be in two different cities in like five years. Like when we were first getting started, we're just trying to, you know, figure out how we're going to get that first vacant lot. Right. So yeah, it's, it's been quite the journey and it's been, I mean, surreal at times in terms of how I feel. I mean, it's, it's almost like an inexplicable emotion. I mean, it just, yeah, I mean, it, it just, it keeps me going, you know, and it just makes me feel like I made the right choice to, to, to live here and to dedicate myself to, you know, Equal House. Yeah. Well, congratulations. You stepped into a community and you've started putting in these flower farms. How has the community accepted or worked with your projects? So, you know, like I was saying before, you know, at first there was like a lot of skepticism, you know, that flowers were really the way to go. But I would say what really won the hearts of the community is, you know, really reaching the kids. You know, kids, like, they would come, they took a chance on us. I mean, you know, they don't know any brothers, kids, there's like, something to do. And, you know, they were having a really good time, really doing a lot of different farm activities in our after-school program. And that really was what began to, like, soften the hearts of their parents, you know, because they sort of saw Eco House and Southside Blooms as a safe place, you know, for their kids to be able to participate, you know, in after-school activity, you know, which when you live in a very dangerous neighborhood is a very important thing if you're a parent, right? Right. And then they sort of saw just like, you know, the genuine passion that me and my wife Hannah had for the kids. So I would say like it first started just like at that basic human level where they're like, wow, you really care about my kids. 
you know, you're creating a safe space for them. They're having fun. So I'm willing to take a chance on you. And then from there, you know, they started to see some of the, you know, more of the economic success, right? So, you know, they started seeing, you know, different tour groups coming in. They started seeing us like build out our farms and make it a little bit, you know, bigger and better. And then, of course, you know, we get to a point where, you know, we start bringing the teenagers and they're being paid to work. Now, you know, everybody loves it, right? Because now they see this as like, oh, this isn't just this fun little safe after school program for my kids, but it's jobs. It's a real career opportunity. You're bringing industry onto my block. Like, this is really awesome, right? So, yeah, like now we have a lot of community participation, you know, like people really love to work with us, work with churches, schools, after school programs. You know, we've also like built like little pocket parks on our farms with like stages where, you know, groups in the community come and do like uh, spoken word uh, contests and rap battles and, you know, little, you know, concerts. You know, we've incorporated art on our farm. So we've had like, you know, community artists come in and, you know, do different like art designs with the kids and that kind of thing. So it's really turned, you know, more, it's, it's more than just a farm now, right? Like it's really become a community space and we really, you know, used our farm as a platform to allow people to come and do place-making activities and to really foster a lot of local community interaction. Nice. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift just a little bit on you. And let's talk about your farming model that allows you to grow at scale. Oh, I think the tough nut that most uh, urban farms have, you know, had a tough time cracking is, okay, you know, I'm able to get a plot of land, which is already a very difficult chore. If you've ever tried to acquire land in a city, it could be a nightmare. So you get this plot of land, you're able to build a farm, but you can't get beyond that, right? Maybe your most successful farms are lucky if they have like two sites, but for the most part, there's really no urban farm that has a model that makes it very easy to get to scale. Because the thing is, like when you're in a place like Detroit or Chicago, I mean, there are thousands of acres that are available, but the problem is it's interwoven with the built environment, right? So, right. you know, it's like you got several buildings and maybe you have like three or four vacant lots and you know, that pattern just kind of repeats itself. So what we did, you know, to really try to innovate around that, you know, this is where like getting off grid is very, very important to us because, you know, we're like, hey, what would it really take for us to be able to grow at scale and to be able to do it quickly and affordably, right? And we're like, okay, in order to do this, we're going to need to eliminate two things, our water bill and our electric bill. Because, you know, when we're like looking at other urban farm models, you know, those are the two things that we were seeing that was, you know, causing farms to, you know, really slow their growth and not being able to replicate as fast, you know, because like they will build this nice farm. It's beautiful. They're growing microgreens, whatever else the case may be. But, you know, they're tied to the grid and, you know, they're dependent on the local utility company to supply them power or, you know, and they also need to get their water from the city and you need to install you know, water on site and all this is like additional expenses, right? And then when you're running that water, because, you know, when you're running a commercial farm, like those are your two biggest ongoing operating costs outside labor is generally your power and your water. Yes. So, you know, now you just created this very top heavy, you know, farming model. But with our model, you know, we were able to like take that away and flip it on Ted. Because we're like, well, you know, instead of looking at the city of Chicago providing us our water and, you know, the local utility here in Chicago is ComEd. So, you know, instead of looking at ComEd, to supply us with our power, you know, what if we just partnered with Mother Nature? Because, you know, Mother Nature is already supplying us, you know, Mother Nature is already supplying us with water. And, you know, instead of looking at these buildings in the built environment as an obstacle, like what if they're actually an asset? And we could basically use that surface area on the roof 
to get us the water that we need instead of like having to run a tap, right? And we're able to, you know, use our shed and put some solar panels on there and collect the freely available, you know, sun power that's being produced every day from Mother Nature. It doesn't cost us anything, right? So, you know, once we figured that part out, yeah, now we can grow and it's no problem. Like, you know, we can build a new farm in less than a week. You know what I'm saying? So for us, it's just more being tied to like the resources that we have on hand and like being able to like build enough customer demand to justify our growth. But our model isn't top heavy, like most urban farm models. So we now have a model that can conceivably be at scale and take advantage of the thousands of acres available in an urban environment and do it profitable. Wow. Cool. How cool is that? So where do you see Southside Blooms going in the next, say, five years? Kind of in this phase where we're really looking at expansion. You know, so the last few years is really just trying to get the kinks out of the model, really trying to, like, prove the concept. And now we're sort of, you know, turning that corner where it's really time to let the world know that we're here. I mean, you know, that's why we want to do this podcast, because we really want to let people know, like, hey, Southside Blooms is here. We're ready to take your business, you know, and help support a really good thing. Next year, we're going to launch, formally launch our flower shop. Our website is up, you know, www.southsideblooms.com. You can basically get your pre-orders in today if you're looking for flowers for Mother's Day. We're looking to build out three new farms in three different neighborhoods next year in Chicago. We're looking to expand our footprint in Detroit next year. And then like beyond that, you know, we really would like to keep riding the flower wave and, you know, really try to become one of the biggest, if not the biggest, flower grower and supplier in the United States. So five years from now, we would love to be in a situation where we're in three or four cities. We have hundreds of farms across those cities, and we at least have like five to ten percent market share of the flower business, you know, in the United States. Wow, that's a big goal. I love that. Yep, we're very ambitious people. You nice. know, you gotta be a little crazy sometimes. Oh yeah, dreaming big. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. People. <laughs> You know, I I created myself to be the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system about 30 years ago. And that's that's a pretty hefty goal in life. You know, who knows how far I'll get, but it's what gets me up every morning. And it's like, why not? If we can dream small or dream big, why not dream big? Right. Yeah, you know, and I kind of feel that same way, too, because, you know, it's like, okay, you know, you may, you know, like I say, you shoot for the stars and you land on the moon, but hey, at least you're off planet Earth. You know <laughs> right, I mean? exactly. And, you know, that's, and that's like our mentality, because, you know, like, I think like part of, you know, I know it seems like a very big goal, even like the goal you're talking about. And, you know, I think we have like very similar goals, you know, to be quite frank, because we do want to get into food yeah. at some point. But I think we look at our work as being a multi-generational job, right? Yes. So I look at like, you know, my role is to really sort of get that, that, you know, do the heavy lifting, get the ball rolling, sort of show people a viable way of like approaching it. And then maybe the next generation comes and they're like, okay, you know, let's build upon that take that momentum. And then, you know, they're the ones who maybe actually, you know, reach the mountaintop. So, you know, and that's why I feel like when you look at historical social change movements, you know, like it's usually been several generations, right? Like it's very rare where, you know, when you're trying to change the world, that's all done within one lifetime. So not to get too morbid here, but, uh, you know, we do definitely look at the next generation and the generation after that, hoping they'll sort of carry out what we're starting today. Yeah. Amen to that. That's, you know, that's plant, that's truly planting seeds for the future. And I love the quote 
Right. Uh, the gentleman that, that started the Land Institute, I think that's where, Wes Jackson, he says, if you're not planning out 50 years, you're not thinking big enough. Right, exactly. Right. So, yeah, that's 100% true. You know, it's funny because, like, you know, when I was in college at UW, I had a professor who really changed my paradigm in terms of the way I looked at my life. Because, you know, before I was kind of like your typical college student, you know, just kind of like living year to year and thinking like, oh, get my degree, get a job, get married, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but my professor, he asked me, you know, like, hey, Keelan, like when, you know, you're on your deathbed, like, what do you want to have accomplished? Like, what do you want your life to mean? And I never really thought about, you know, my life like from like living it from like the end forward. I was kind of just was like living it, you know, from the front to the end. Right. And I was like. You know, I just kind of like grasp for some straws. I'm like 20 years old or whatever. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, it'd be kind of cool if I'm able to like retire early or, you know, be able to like, you know, have my kids go to like, you know, nice colleges or whatever. And then he said like something I'll never forget. He was like, Keelan, whatever you decide to dedicate yourself, whatever goal you set for yourself, if you can accomplish it within your lifetime, that goal is too small. And that like totally changed the way <laughs> nice. I viewed my, my entire life. Right. Yeah. And that's like why I'm approaching Southside Blooms the way I do. Because it's like, you know what? I want to try to like have my life be dedicated to a goal that's so big, it's going to take multiple lifetimes to achieve it. And I just want to play my part. Like, yep. that's what gives me meaning. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How cool is that? Once again, I'm just I'm loving what you're doing there. Thank you so much for that. So oh, I'm yeah, gonna, totally. I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, <laughs> and what you might have learned from it. Yeah. So I failed several, several times. I love talking about failure because, you know, like a lot of times, you know, when you're in a situation, you know, where people see some success, you know, a lot of times we want to curate the story and like, you know, whitewash, you know, all the bad things that happen, but that's not true. Right. So, you know, for me, firstly, I've had eight or nine businesses fail before I started EcoHouse and I was, I mean, I was struggling, um, you know, because like I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just didn't really know like what was like that right formula. And like, there's like one business in particular that like I had these high hopes for, you know, is like, I was like in the medical supplies industry that I was trying to do. Cause you know, I had a friend, you know, it seemed like he had some, you know, opportunities in medical supplies industry. I didn't really know anything about it, but like we could maybe make some money. So I was like, okay, let's try to do this. And, you know, at first we had some, you know, initial success. So I'm thinking like, okay, like, you know, this is going to be it, you know, I'm going to be able to quit my day job. I'm going to be able to focus on this. And, you know, like the entire thing ends up belly flopping. And, you know, like for me, it created a little bit of identity crisis because, you know, kind of like really caused me to, you know, look at my life and, you know, look at myself and be like, hey, do I really have what it takes to be an entrepreneur? You know, like I've been trying to do this. Like at that point, that's probably like my eighth business that failed. And I'm like, OK, you know, you know, maybe maybe it's just ain't for me. Maybe, you know, someone like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and these other successful entrepreneurs, maybe they know the secret sauce and I just don't know it. And I was particularly disappointed with that business failure because I really tried. Like, I was, like, reading, like, a lot of those self-help books and, you know, trying to, like, you know, read, like, biographies of, you know, Warren Buffett and trying to, like, like learn and think, like, you know, how other successful entrepreneurs think and, you know, reading books like Good to Great. Like, you know, all those, business, you know, the traditional business books out there, I was reading them. And it still didn't work, right? So, you know, like, I was basically ready to just, like, give up altogether and, you know, really, like, the only thing that kind of, like, forced me to pick myself up was, well, number one, I didn't know what I would do, like, what else I would do. So I was like, okay, well, this thing blew up, but I don't really have anywhere else to go, so let me just kind of, you know, sit here for a while and lick my wounds. And that actually ended up being, like, the, the best thing for me. 
because it really gave me time to, you know, reflect and do a lot of introspection. And that probably lasted like a good six months. And it was like really through that time, I was able to really clarify, you know, my personal values, what I really wanted to dedicate my life to. You know, I had to be honest with myself. I mean, I think like that's a real hard thing too when you go through a failure is like I'd really be honest and like say like, hey, you know what? I was really just trying to chase money. Like, so let me stop chasing money and let me try to chase like a real problem and just focus on solving something that's going to add real value to people. And if I don't make money, you know, whatever, like I'll just let the money figure itself out over time. But basically just sort of trusting the fact that if I keep doing, you know, the right thing, the right way, you know, at some point it's going to break. And that was, that's, you know, that wasn't easy. You know what I mean? Because like a lot oh, yeah. of times as entrepreneur, you know, people are telling you like, hey, if you're not making money in the first six months, get out, right? Like it's a waste of your time. Because I didn't make my first like paycheck from Eco House until like year three. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, it was very, very difficult and very lean times. But, you know, now I look back on it and now that I got like more, you know, sort of, uh, ag, I'm a little more ag literate. I kind of look at failure a lot differently. I kind of look at it as like, cover cropping you know what i mean exactly you know because like you know when you plant like a cover crop you know from a natural perspective you could just kind of look at it and be like oh you just plant this crop and then it died and that's that like it failed right but no like the point of a cover crop is that it's intentionally going to die so then it can make the soil more fertile for your cash crop right yep. and in retrospect like i looked at those eight or nine business failures as basically eight or nine you know cover crops that yeah they all failed and they all died but then they made, you know, the soil within myself a lot more fertile so that the cash crop of Southside Blooms could grow from there. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that made me like look at it totally differently because, you know, in the moment, you know, I'm like looking at each individual failure and I'm like, you know, taking it as, oh, wow, I can't do this. Like I'm doing something wrong. But, you know, now I look back on it, I'm like, you know what? Thank God for those failures because hey, I won't be doing what I'm doing today if it wasn't through all those struggles I had to go. Through. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good job, man. What do you consider your biggest success? Well, I think my biggest success is, uh, you know, basically what I just described with like Kobe. I mean, you know, whenever I see, you know, a Kobe of the world, like one of our students really turn their life around in a very tangible and concrete way and do like that, you know, 180. That's what's to me, like, that's what it's about. Like, at the end of the day, you can win awards, you can get grants, you can make sales, and that's all good because that's all the fuel that's, you know, driving the fire and driving the engine, so to speak. But, you know, it's really about changing lives, you know, for me. And, you know, I think, like, whenever I see that and I see, like, you know, sort of those eyes, you know, light up, you know, especially in a kid who previously thought their life was worthless and now they have meaning and they have value, and not only do they have value, but now they're like, they're all about regenerative agriculture and sustainability, because they're not looking at it as like, necessarily, quote, unquote, good policy. They're looking at this as like, hey, this is what saved my life. So they're going to like fight a lot differently than someone who's just doing this, you know, because it's their own scientific or interest, or it's just a hobby. So yes, like, definitely with each kid who comes through and whose life has changed, that's how I define success. Wow. And that probably clicks into what drives you as well. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yep. Same thing. They're one of the same, you know, like that's, you know, what's keeping me going. And yeah, I mean, I know it sounds a little redundant and a little simple, but to me it really matters because I look at a lot of these kids and I just look at myself and I'm like, Hey, you know what? I could have easily been them. So, yeah. and if I were them, I would have wished that someone who was in my position would have taken the opportunities and blessings that they had in life and, you know, use it to try to just give me a chance and give me an opportunity. And, you know, so it's like humbling. So like every time someone like Kobe does very, really well and they 
you know, really sort of have that light bulb go off and they end up doing these really cool things, you know, through our work, then yeah, like it makes me feel like I'm like, you know, living up to like what has a math, you know, too much is given, much is expected. And I feel yeah. like, hey, you know what, I've been given a lot. So there's these great expectations. And, you know, I feel like those expectations are being fulfilled every time another life, another human being, you know, is able to get an opportunity and they run with it. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? The book I want to recommend is The Art of War by Sun Tzu. It's not a conventional recommendation, but for those who aren't familiar with Sun Tzu, he was like this Chinese general like you know, a few thousand years ago. And then he basically wrote this book that is essentially about, you know, strategy and battle and wars and the affairs of the state. And it's been a highly, highly influential book or, you know, over the millennia, it's used in business and politics, obviously in the military. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the reason why I recommend it is because I think for a lot of people who care about regenerative ag and sustainability, a lot of times we don't necessarily think about what we're doing as being part of, you know, sort of a larger war and sort of engaged in warfare, you know, but I can guarantee you people in conventional ag would look at us and see us as a threat. Right. So yep. I think like if are your listeners were to read one book, I would recommend this book. And I think like, you know, if more of us in the regenerative ag movement would, you know, start thinking more militaristically, and I don't mean that in terms of like engaging in violence, I mean like that strategic thinking that it would really help to, you know, lift the industry and lift the movement as a field together and, you know, help accelerate a lot of the work that we're doing. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I'm going to keep it very simple. Don't quit. There's a lot of things you can do. I mean, drink big and, you know, like keep learning and that kind of thing. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think the thing I've seen, you know, what separates uh, the wheat from the shaft, so to speak, is people who quit and people who don't quit. So if I was your listeners and you're really encouraged by regenerative agriculture, very passionate about it, just don't give up. I don't care how insurmountable the circumstances may appear. I don't care, like, how many Popeye's chicken sandwiches are selling. Don't care. Like, do not quit. Stay in the battle. Stay on the front lines. And things will get better because we're doing the right thing. People are starting to take notice of it. You know, regenerative ag is solving way more problems than just creating healthier food systems, which, of course, is very important. But even, like, in, you know, sharing my story, like, that's part of what I want your listeners to see, too, is that regenerative ag is solving a lot of social problems. It's helping to close historical gaps within racism and gender inequality and, you know, all these other things that people don't necessarily connect to regenerative agriculture. But at the end of the day, you know, someone like Kobe is able to have the opportunities that he's having and create the life that he's created for himself because of regenerative agriculture. So don't forget about that and don't quit. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Keelan. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. And how can our listeners find you and find out more information about you? Yeah. So you can go to uh, www.southsideblooms.com. That's our florist website. You can also send us an email, info at southsideblooms.com, or you could give us a call. Our phone number is 773-358-4227. Nice. And as you said earlier, if you want to get your flower order in for Mother's Day next year, you can do that on their website. Yep, that's 100% correct. Excellent. Southsideblooms.com. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Southside Blooms. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. 
Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.